tonight we'll look at Martin Luther, as I, as I said, the theme of faith alone, and in two weeks' time we'll look at John Calvin and the theme of God's glory alone, and then the last one we'll look at big hero of mine, Thomas Cranmer, um, who, as I was saying just now in the evening service, wrote a lot of the best parts of Anglican prayers. Um, that'll be week three of these seminars, looking at scripture alone. And next week, by the way, it's fireworks night, so we thought we wouldn't try and compete and do um, a seminar for next week. So it's two weeks' time, the next one. Now, looking at the Reformation, um, to some of you here, you're probably kind of experts on this more than I am. Some of us here are probably thinking, I know nothing, but it kind of just sounds intriguing, so I'm here with a kind of blank canvas. Um, I hope what we do tonight is going to help all of us to learn something tonight to help us in our faith, or if, if you're not a Christian yet, to help us to think about what faith really is. And that's our big theme tonight, faith. So I thought before we go further, let's just say a prayer, shall we? And ask God to help us to hear what's important for us tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Reformation, but thank you even more for the Lord Jesus and for your mercy and love that you show to us in him. We pray that you will speak to us and help us in wherever we are in our journey of faith to find you and to trust in you more strongly and more richly. In Jesus' name, amen. Great, well I've said we're going to finish by 8.45, so having quite rightly spent a long time on refreshments, because they were worth spending time on, we're going to get cracking I think tonight. So Martin Luther, um, the 31st of October 1517, 500 years ago on Tuesday, is the anniversary of him famously nailing his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And we kind of mark that with the all-age service this morning, with a door over there. It's a very famous event. It's why the international anniversary is happening right now. And today is actually Reformation Sunday all over the world. Now, he was born in 1483 in eastern Germany, a place called Eisleben, Saxony. Um, into a really pretty ordinary family, very much working class. His dad was the manager of a local mine. Um, But life in the late medieval Europe was a pretty tough existence. So just kind of context-wise, one thing is, this was a tough world. This was not a cushy, academic, soft lifestyle he was born into, but it was a time of um, frequent plague. There were no, really no medicines at all, so no antibiotics in those days. Infections were often very serious, often fatal. Um, Short life expectancy, um, family patterns, discipline was very severe. So he, he, I think, got 15 lashes one day from his mum just for sort of not brushing his teeth or something, pretty trivial. Um, Hard manual work. And again, you know, the, the, the kind of chimney sweep. That, that was the kind of expectation of childhood. That you'll be doing hard manual work as well as learning at school. So there's that kind of, it was a tough world. The second thing is, it was a world beginning to emerge from the medieval period and new ideas were on the move. So um, there were a couple of kind of ways this was happening. One is what's called humanism. And I've just put a name, some of you will know the name Erasmus who was a very influential, very intelligent, very urbane scholar, um, just about the same time as Luther, who was forerunner in translating ancient texts, the the ancient Greeks and the ancient Latin writers that hadn't been translated or read for years. They were going back to the sources, as they put it, back to the ad fontes, back to the original sources of the classical writings. And he wrote a, a translated Greek New Testament, First one, again, for many centuries, and a very accurate translation or, or um, version of the New Testament in Greek, which was read by Luther. So that's one thing. This kind of going back to the original documents was a big thing. And along with that was a movement of, of really Christian renewal, people focusing, instead of on church tradition, focusing on Jesus and getting back to a kind of simple faith all about reading the Gospels and living the life Jesus lived. And there are a number of different names. They haven't got to worry about them, but Valdo... Um, what a great name, Valdo. Um, rhymes about that, where, where's Wally thing, doesn't it? But Valdo and a guy called Jan Hus, that we may mention again later, and someone you may have heard of in England called John Wycliffe. Um, Wycliffe Bible Translator, I think we have a mission partner that works with them, don't we? Um, or haven't we, Holy Trinity? And he was uh, influential in translating, again, the Bible and leading this kind of movement of churches getting back to the New Testament, um, and the Lollards that kind of grew from Wycliffe's movement were very active in East Anglia, including in Norwich. So there are these kind of two things going on that were 
under the surface, just, I suppose, make a fertile world in which Luther brought then the seeds of Reformation. The big theme I think we'll look at tonight for, for Luther is really the theme of freedom. And if you've got the, um, I hope you've got a handout as you came in, you'll see on there, we're going to look at freedom from fear, freedom from the church's authority, and then over the page, freedom from the bondage of sin. Those are our kind of three themes. Um, and the freedom from fear is, is his early years of exploring faith and coming to what we call Christian conversion, faith in Christ. You'll see on the chart there that he was around about 21, 22 in 1505 when he joined a monastery as a monk. He'd actually trained or begun training as a lawyer at university in a place called Airfort. And his dad wanted him to be a successful lawyer and perhaps one day like a town mayor or something. Um, but he had a dramatic moment, age 21, almost struck by a lightning bolt in a thunderstorm. He was so terrified. He cried out to one of the saints, you know, save me, St. Anne. And because he survived the experience, he swore from that moment he would go and be a monk because he thought being a monk was the best way to avoid God's judgment and try and live a good life. So he went off to the monastery, um, became what's called an Augustinian monk. And in that monastery, there was a, a, a movement called the Via Moderna, the modern way, that were emphasizing the human ability, as they put it, to learn to live a moral life, to live a good life, to please God and and find eternal life. And that was very much part of the Catholic teaching, the religious teaching at the end of the the medieval period, that uh, the life of faith, as I was saying earlier, is a bit like a kind of sports game, like a rugby match. And you're trying to get the ball, if you know rugby, you're trying to get the ball over the enemy team's line at the back there. And all the way through the game, the, 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 the aim is to move the ball up the pitch and over that line. It's a bit like that with religion. The idea was you're trying to do lots of good things in your life and avoid lots of sins so that eventually you get the ball over the line. You've done enough good things for God to accept you. And the trouble was, as I was saying, you never know where you are on the pitch. It's like you're playing in the dark. You can't see the line. You can't see where you are. You never know if you've done enough. And that was Luther's big problem. He had this fear of God's judgment, very common in this world of sickness and plague and death. Everyone was terrified of death and judgment. And he had this fear that whatever he did, even in the monastery, praying eight times a day and so on, it would never quite be enough. In the period that he lived in, the Catholic religion had a number of rituals that were very important and were kind of forced upon the ordinary people to obey them. One was a thing called penance, penance, um, and it was a system of two things. Confession to a priest, had to be to a priest, a Catholic priest, and then followed by something called satisfaction, just meant doing something to kind of make up for what you've done wrong. So in a kind of very simple form of discipline, really. You know, you've done something wrong, you admit to it, to the priest, and then they say, well, okay, to make up for you, now I've got to go and say 100 Hail Marys or give 100 pounds away to a charity penance. The other thing was the idea of purgatory, and you may have heard of purgatory. Purgatory was was a kind of idea of a a middle place between earth and heaven, a kind of refining suite where you went. It wasn't a very nice place to be, but a refining suite where you went to have the sins that you'd still committed on earth dealt with, refined away, eradicated purified before you went to heaven. Um, So purgatory was a place of suffering after death to which pretty much everyone expected to go to suffer in so that one day you'd then be allowed to get into heaven and be released from suffering. Now it was taught in Luther's time that by a priest praying for you or saying a mass for you, what we call a communion service, saying it on your behalf, the Pope could reduce the amount of time you would spend in purgatory. So if you're kind of a a really wicked sinner, you know, like a, I don't know, a premiership footballer or something, a really wicked person, you might have a thousand years in purgatory to write off all your sins. And if you go and spend a hundred pounds on the priest saying some prayers for you, they could cut it down to 900 or 800. The more you spent, the more you got off. 
It was a pretty crude model, but that was what was being taught in the time of Martin Luther. There was a guy called Johannes Tetzel, um, who was going around teaching this stuff about purgatory, and he was, he was selling time off purgatory. It was called indulgences. It was a letter of indulgence from the Pope saying, because you said these prayers or had these prayers said for you, you've got 100 years off. Or, if, if you're kind of a cheapskate, a year or two off. Um, and lots of people kind of made pictures of this and, and mocked what they were doing, but this was actually happening in Luther's time. There were people going around selling indulgences, which was just time off purgatory. There's a little rhyme that they came up with. This guy called Tetzel supposedly came up with this. When the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Not great poetry, but you see what he's saying? If you put your money in, then your £10 note is going to release someone that might be a great aunt of yours that you've been praying for, release her from purgatory. Massive emotional pressure, isn't it? You put the money in, your dear old great aunt gets released from purgatory. When the coin rings in the coffer, their soul springs from purgatory. Now, the money from all this was, of course, being taken by the church. That didn't make the church very popular, especially in Germany, um, where they were very aware of all their money going off to Rome. And it was being used, actually, if you've been to Rome, to build St. Peter's Basilica, that enormous church in Rome, where Michelangelo, at this time, was painting the Sistine Chapel. And Luther visited Rome in 1510. And he climbed these, these holy steps called Pilate's, as in Pontius Pilate's steps. And you're meant to climb these steps saying the Lord's Prayer on each step and get to the top. And at the end, you're meant to kind of go, ah, oh, I've done it. You know, God's forgiven me. I've done enough now. Luther did this and he very religiously climbed the steps and said the prayers and he got to the top. And instead of saying, I've done it, what a relief, he went, how do I know that was enough? And that was his big thing. And as he read the Bible, he began to question this whole system of penance and purgatory and indulgences. And um, he was invited in 1511 to start lecturing on the Bible. He was becoming such a theologian on this area. He went to a newly formed university in a place called Wittenberg. And the ideas of a, a, a very early Christian called Augustine were being taught and lived out in that university by the teachers there. And Augustine had taught, rather than if we do all these good things, God may accept us one day, the kind of rugby game again, Augustine taught that none of us are good enough and only God's mercy can save us. And Luther was beginning to put two and two together as he read the Bible. He read Romans, the Psalms, the book of Galatians. And this is what he said at that time as he was teaching on these books of the Bible. If ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I was that monk. Yet my conscience could not be certain. I always doubted and said, you didn't do that quite right. You weren't quite contrite, confessional enough. The more I tried to remedy a troubled conscience, the more I found it troubled. So here's this fear he's got that it won't be enough, that God won't love him and forgive him. Now, the big thing he was struggling was how can a sinner be right with or face a holy and righteous God? How can we bring these two things together, the sinner and the holy God? And the issue, we call it now, the, the thing of justification by faith alone. It just means righteous, right with God by faith alone. And that was the big change he was going through. Instead of righteous by what I do, he was beginning to discover what the Bible teaches, righteous by faith alone, by faith in Christ. And he went to the church in Wittenberg, and he saw a stone, there was a big stone carving there above the church door, with Christ there seated on a rainbow, judging the world. You may have seen this kind of thing, the Sistine Chapel's got another one like this, Christ as judge. And he says, the, the carving of Christ, he was so angry with us, that the veins on his forehead stood out. It's a terrifying picture of Christ. Menacing and swollen, he says. And as he went through this period of fear and trying to find his way to God, two other things helped the jigsaw to fit together. One was this. He was presiding at a communion service one day with the bread and the wine, and he realized as he did this that the effectiveness of that, of that service, of that ritual, depended not on the power 
of him, the priest, whether he was good enough to serve the people, but it depended upon the faith of the person receiving it. All about the faith of the person receiving Christ, not the priest giving, as it were, Christ to the people. And then second, he studied a verse from Romans chapter 1. This was a little later, probably 1519. He wrote about this later. He says, I realize that when Paul says that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, he does not mean that God's righteously angry with sinners for not being righteous. It means that God is sweetly, lovely word, sweetly giving his righteousness to us even though we are still sinners. Verse 17 of Romans, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, faith alone. Just as it's written, and he quotes the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. So there's Luther's big thing. We are made right with God, not by what we do, but by what Christ has done, and by faith, trusting in what Christ has done. You could put it this way. God righteously makes the unrighteous righteous through Christ. You hear that? He righteously, because it's completely just what he does, makes the unrighteous, that's you and me, righteous through Christ. Luther put it this way. He said, we are at one and the same time righteous as God looks at us and yet still inside sinners. We're not perfect yet, this side of heaven, are we? We're still sinners. But yet we are, in God's eyes, righteous, right with him. It's a wonderful thing. He used the image of a sick patient um, being treated. He says, I'm not yet cured inside, but I believe the promise of the doctor that he will make me well, and I one day will be cured. So that's the first theme, this big theme of... um, how it's through the righteousness of God revealed in Christ on the cross that we are made right with him. Second big theme, and then I'm going to stop in a few minutes and give you a chance to kind of talk about some of this stuff and and discuss it together. Freedom from the church is authority. There are two, two, two parallel things were happening here. On one hand, personally, Luther was making this journey of discovery of how he could be right with God. At the same time, he looked at the church... And the things the church was teaching and doing, as we've seen, and he began to get some big question marks about how biblical they truly were. So he read the Bible, how the Bible says we can be saved from sin and death through Christ. He spotted that when the Bible says, show repentance, it was talking about a change of heart, not about the act of penance. Remember what penance was? Going to see the priest to say confession? And he recognized really through Erasmus's translation, that Latin had turned the, the words for be repentant into do acts of penance. It had made the heart action into a ritual action to justify what the church was teaching. Uh, and so he began to question what the church was saying and how biblical it really was. And Wittenberg had a castle a castle church full of relics. You know what relics are? Relics were um, supposedly you know, bits of saints that were kind of left behind. So you know, a bone of St. Anne or a bit of John the Baptist's hair, that kind of thing. And they were believed to have special power. That If you, if you went and said a prayer or had a mass said for you um, with that relic in the same building, it had a special power to save you and release you from purgatory. The church of Wittenberg had apparently 9,000 relics. Um, even had a wisp of straw from Jesus' crib, apparently, from when he was a baby, apparently. Um, a piece of bread from the Last Supper, that's the kind of thing they had. And Luther began to recognize that this was all a system that was being used to justify taking money from people and take it off to the church and off to Rome to build the St. Peter's Basilica. And so what he did on that uh, Eve of All Saints Day, 31st of October, 1517, actually met a very receptive audience because people were getting tired of all this tradition and money. He nailed his 95 Theses to the church door. And the 95 Theses um, are not kind of his developed theology. 
they were the kind of first stab at asking some questions about all this stuff. They're very courteous and questioning. They're actually in Latin originally. That's, I think it's Latin up there, isn't it? Um, they were only translated into German a few months later when they began to spread like wildfire after that as people began to read them. But they were questioning rather than demanding at this stage. Um, the first one simply says, as I've just said, that penitence in the Gospels should be a whole life of repentance in the Bible and does not refer to the sacrament of penance, as the Catholic Church was teaching. They go on uh, later on to question the power and the wealth of the Pope and was it bringing his name into disrepute that he was so wealthy and to argue that redemption comes from repentance and not from penance and buying indulgences. So these 95 theses were, they were really kind of scholarly discussions starting, but they were the spark because of some of the contents in them that ignited this whole reformation and changed the church in Europe and beyond. And Luther began to study the Bible more and more and to discover what it says about how we can be forgiven sins. He went on uh, in the following year, two or three further discussions took place, one at a place called Heidelberg, and he, wrote, he got his 95 down to 28 for this. He was beginning to kind of edit, you can see. 20 was probably enough, wasn't it? Um, and the kind of key ideas here were that we cannot save ourselves by good works. That's Augustine, again, is it? And it's the Bible, too. Good works cannot save us. Human nature is in the power of evil. We are not, by ourselves, able to live a good life to save ourselves. We're in the power of evil, of sin, too much. We'll come back to that. And only the way of the cross leads to salvation. He wasn't quite sure yet how that worked exactly, He didn't yet understand that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins and to exchange our sins for his righteousness. He'll get there quite soon, but he's finding his way there at Heidelberg. And then he's summoned to a a discussion at Leipzig in 1519 against a a Catholic scholar called Johannes Eck. And at Leipzig, the, the two of them debate the power of the church, the authority of the church to pronounce on these things, of how people find God and so on. And Luther is beginning to argue very clearly that the church is getting this wrong. The church must go back to the Bible and admit that sometimes what it's been doing has not been in the Bible and be prepared to change. And at Leipzig, he begins to very clearly start to put the authority of the Bible, Scripture, against and over that of the Pope. Controversial in those days, of course. Johannes Eck was quite a clever chap, and he began to argue that Luther was following the teachings of someone that had been declared a heretic, someone called Jan Hus, we mentioned him earlier, a bohemian. And Luther was forced to agree that Hus had actually got some things right. And the Pope hadn't got everything right. And Luther was right probably to say that, but it immediately got him in trouble because it put him in the category of heretic, along with this guy, Jan Hus, the Bohemian. And from that day on, Luther really became a kind of a marked man for the Catholic Church, for the authorities. He was given two months to recant, in other words, to deny everything he'd taught, or to be declared a heretic with a death penalty, potentially, if that happened. He responded not by recanting or you know, rolling over and doing what the church said, but by beginning to write more and more controversial books. Um, he wrote three in 1520. Uh, one was addressed to the German princes, to the kind of secular powers, saying to them effectively, look, the church is taking too much power from you. Why are you letting them do it? Um, why don't you stand up and, and claim that the authority that you have? He then wrote a, a lovely little book called The Freedom of a Christian. If you can get this in print, it's a wonderful book. It's only 40, 50 pages. The Freedom of a Christian. It's all about how, as a Christian, we are absolutely free from being told we must do good works and told by the church what to do in order to find God. The gospel sets us free from that. We are freed from sin through what Christ has done, not what we do. But then he went on to argue, it doesn't mean that we just do whatever we want. We're not, in that sense, free at all. We are servants of God now, to live his way. It's a wonderfully balanced book, lovely little read. And he wrote something very controversial called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, which if you're here for the evening services on Daniel, we've, we've touched on this. Uh, Babylon was where the Israelites were taken to slavery and exile. 
And Luther was arguing that what the Catholic Church had done was to take God's people and put them back in exile again, back in slavery in a new Babylon called Rome. So kind of hot stuff, wasn't it? Controversial stuff. So he didn't win any more friends, as you can imagine, in the Catholic Church by writing this sort of stuff. And he was summoned to the next really defining moment called the Diet of Worms, the Diet of Worms in 1521. And he was told, unless he recanted here, that he would be declared a heretic. And uh, again, a debate took place. Um, he was ordered to withdraw his teaching. He asked for a day to think about it. Um, wrote a kind of speech overnight, ready for that, and next day delivered it. And he simply said, I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience, by which he meant what I believe the scriptures are teaching about Christ. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand May God help me, amen. Those famous words, here I stand. May God help me, amen. Now, those days, the, um, most of you, it was, was ruled by the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, who wasn't a great friend of the Pope, would have probably quite liked to have let Luther off, actually, just to annoy the Pope. But he saw, uh, despite liking some of what Luther said, he saw he had no option but to allow Luther to be condemned and excommunicated. And Luther was kind of led out of the hall, shouts with people saying, you know, burn him, he's a heretic, burn him. Um, but he was very dramatically captured by a group of knights, German knights, that kind of rode up on horseback and smuggled him away. And he was secreted off to a castle um, in his native Saxony and protected there in a castle called the Wartburg. So dramatic stuff, Martin Luther, all of it, all the way through. Dramatic guy, dramatic story. Um, but that's the story so far of how he found freedom from the fear that both religion and the world he lived in had put him into. But also then he found freedom from the church's authority to begin to assert the scriptures, Jesus' authority instead. So I thought we could just stop there and give you a chance to have a, a little talk to people around you. It may just be, you know, you've got a question, um, something you didn't understand, something you'd like to ask more about. So do, you know, ask each other, have you got something that we could ask? But I have on the handouts put um, a short Bible passage um, from Romans chapter 3 and two or three questions there which you can just spend how are we doing for time? Yeah, just spend five minutes have a look at those I think and then we'll, we'll come back together and move on to, to finish off with part two um, and a short discussion at the end for tonight. So if you're happy with that, you're happy just to I thought it'd be good to just talking to each other and looking at a bit of the Bible on this. Romans 3, very important to Martin Luther. So why don't you turn in the Bibles to Romans 3 um, and just get someone where you are to find the page, read those verses, Romans 3, 21 to 24, and then have a look at the first couple of questions. Questions 1 and 2 are probably the most useful to have a quick look at, just for five minutes, then we'll come back together. If you want to join us, we'll do make sure there's no one around that's kind of on their own and would rather be with a group. If you'd rather just think quietly, silent reading, that's fine. Please just do that. Can I just ask how you're doing? Do you want another minute or would you rather we keep, keep moving? You're okay? You had enough time, mostly, roughly, yeah? Okay, great. Anyone, anyone got any kind of questions? Um, or could someone perhaps just see what you said for question one? What's the role of the Old Testament according to Romans 3 in our relationship with God? Anyone just shout it out for us? Question's fine. How did the church come to be in such a state was the question. I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that. I, I, I think churches, you know, by, by nature, the church always tends to be prone to straying from 
the true biblical ways. Um, it, it's always been the pattern in church history. You know, the thing we need to learn from church history is how easy it is for churches to go wrong. It keeps us humble, I think, doesn't it? Um, and you know, thank God that he sends along people every few hundred years that, that help us to recover the, the true gospel and understand the scriptures properly again. That's a good question. I think it humbles us that we need to pray, don't we, for the church. It's all too easy to get it wrong. Yeah, another question, or chip in on question one. Joe. Yeah, where was, where was Luther's support from? It was both, I think. He, um, he was, you know, he was lucky, lucky. God, God had given him friends in high places in Saxony. So the Elector of Saxony, um, Frederick, was a, was a supporter of his. Um, several other, his um, advisor, Spalatin, was a big help to Luther over those years. Um, some of the artists, actually, people like Albrecht Dürer, um, were actually very sympathetic to Protestant ideas too. Were, were painting because propaganda. Painting was propaganda. You saw a couple of pictures earlier, um, and he was very good at exploiting all that and using the, the methods available to communicate. But the common people were ready for this as well. So it was both really. And as we'll see, Lutheranism spread very fast, not just across Germany but across Scandinavia and the world. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah, John. There's a reason why I didn't put 25 on the handout. <laughs> very naughty, going on 25. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a, a good question. Um, it, probably it's wider than that. It's probably the sins of the whole human race, I think. Um, I'll have to check that, actually, because I haven't looked at that recently. Um, but I think it's referring to Jews and Gentiles across the whole world to that point because that's kind of where his argument's gone so far. Okay, yeah, that's right. Yep. Thank you. We'll come back to that later because he wasn't perfect. He, he did do some, had some pretty odd and sometimes very unbiblical um, views which we'll come back to. He's no, you know, no Christian here is perfect, are they? It's a good, good reminder as well. They all have their faults. Yeah. Anyone really struggling with either of those, or any of those three verses? Because I would hate you to go home thinking, what on earth was that bit of the Bible saying? Because that wasn't the idea of tonight at all. Yes. Mm. Thank you. What does verse 21 mean when it says the law and prophets testify to the righteousness from God apart from law? Isn't it interesting? What did you think? Or did you just think, no idea? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, I think if you look at the gist of the flow of Romans, I think Paul is saying that the Old Testament actually teaches that we're made right with God by faith, not by anything we do. So rather than, we, don't we naturally think, oh, the law, that's all about do this, do that, and God will love you. And Paul is saying, actually, that's completely to misread the law. The law and the prophets point to righteousness from God coming through faith. And he, he quotes a, a verse from Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith quite frequently, which is a big verse for Luther. So I think that's what it's saying, that you should read the Old Testament and, and see, as it were, see Christ there. You should see the way of faith there. And if you read it as a book about works, you haven't read it right. Should we keep moving? Because I've, I've, I've got less than 10 minutes to finish. So we're going to go on very quickly. Um, we're going to go on to the, the kind of third, <coughs> third theme over the page now. And free from the bondage of sin. Or the slavery of sin. As Luther was sitting in his, you know, his secret castle in the Wartburg, thinking and writing and studying the scriptures, um, he began to 
be clearer and clearer about, really about human nature um, and how much we need grace, God's goodness to rescue us and how we are unable to save ourselves. Um, so just going deeper and deeper into the stuff he's already begun to discover. Um, and at the same time, he was beginning to clarify the relationship between faith and human or unaided human reason. Because some medieval teaching said that our logic can, can think our way to God, um, or at least that human reason is able to enable us to live good lives, because you know, morals are kind of rational things, and therefore, at least in part, to make us right with God, to contribute to our salvation, even if we still need God's help. Um, and Luther began to kind of see a, a real distinction here between no faith alone saves us, and because our human reason is always flawed, it's always skewed somehow, always gets it wrong, it can never fully lead us towards God. It'll always actually lead us in the opposite direction. Um, so he wasn't irrational. He was a highly intelligent guy, actually, Martin Luther. He was not irrational, but he did at one point describe unaided human reason, so you know, reason without God's help, as the devil's whore. A pretty strong language, isn't it? And the keyword that kind of defined this clash between can we um, think our way towards living a good life or actually can only God set us free to live a good life was a clash with that guy Erasmus we mentioned earlier. Erasmus was this very cool, intelligent humanist who was a kind of a, um, I guess today we'd probably call him a, um, an outward Christian, you know, a churchgoer moral, wants to live a good life, but would not agree with Luther's teaching about faith being what saves us. Always wanted to add something from the human side. Never faith on its own, always plus good works, morals, rationalism, thinking. So Erasmus wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. And it was a book arguing this, that in his view, the Bible... Erasmus said the Bible teaches us that we need God's help to be good enough for God, but we also have a free enough will inside us. Our heart, if you like, has enough of a good desire in it to do some good things. So, as it were, Erasmus is saying our free will gets us sort of this far towards God and he does the rest for us. So he wasn't saying God does nothing, but he was saying our free will is part of how God saves us, or how we're saved. How we save ourselves, you might say. Now, Erasmus wasn't a Bible scholar, he wasn't a theologian, um, and in his book he admits how complex this topic is. He knew that centuries people have debated this thing about free will or no free will. Can we do good things on our own, or can we only do it with, with God's help? Um, Augustine had written stuff on this as well, um, centuries earlier. Luther replied, um, he took a year to write his book, but he, he wrote a book in response to Luther's book, The Freedom of the Will. He said, I'm reluctant to respond to such an uneducated book by such an, a learned man. But in his book entitled The Bondage of the Will, so not the freedom of the will now, but the, for Luther it's the bondage of the will, the slavery of the will, he played to his strength as a Bible scholar and he met everything that Erasmus said, every verse Erasmus quoted for his argument and demonstrated that actually the Bible said the opposite. So Erasmus said the Bible says our wills are free, we can begin to do good things without God's help. Luther said, no, the Bible says we're not free. Our sin is too strong, we need God to set us free in Christ through faith. And point by point he demolishes really Erasmus', Erasmus arguments. It's kind of um, very one-sided debate. Um, and he argues, Luther, that it's only because we are united with Christ through faith that we begin to receive the power to live a new life. And that's, again, that's very New Testament language, isn't it? It's exactly what the Bible teaches us. It's through being united with Christ through faith that we receive his life, his spirit, his power to begin to live a new life. We cannot do it if God doesn't first help us in Christ. So what Luther did was, he, he won the argument really, but he put very clear water suddenly between his teaching, the, the Protestant, it was now becoming the Protestant teaching about the gospel and humanism, 
which to that point it looked quite similar because they, they translated the Bible, they read the New Testament, they, tried, they talked about Jesus. But suddenly it was becoming clear that Luther was about grace and Erasmus ultimately was about moralism. Go and be a good person. Try harder, do your best. You have free will. Luther, no, we need grace. Our wills are enslaved by the sin inside us until Christ sets us free. So Luther uh, continued writing. Um, he very bravely was called back to, or went back to Wittenberg because um, the, the, the church there was kind of going a bit haywire without him. Um, and he very bravely went back and risked his life to do that, to help to kind of straighten things out there again. Um, but it wasn't until the 1530s that Lutheranism, as we now call it, Protestant teaching from Luther, was recognized um, in that part of Germany as, as a kind of legal and valid form of faith, as opposed to Catholicism. He died in his hometown, back in his hometown, Eisleben, on an icy January night in 1546. He was asked on his deathbed, Martin, are you ready to die, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and in what you have taught in his name? To which he simply said a resounding, yes. Interesting, wasn't it? There was no priest there when he died, no last rites, no rituals, no last confession. He just expressed his faith in Christ directly, as it were, straight to Christ, as was the Protestant faith he had taught, faith alone that saves now, before we just stop and get you to, to have a, a brief final discussion, um, people talk about faith alone and a number of other alones that you may hear about. I'll just, I'll just put them up here in case they're baffling you. Um, there we go. Um, so, Scripture alone, the idea that only Scripture is, is the kind of authority on how we're saved, not the church. Faith alone, we've looked at. Grace alone. Christ alone. And God's glory, we'll look at God's glory alone, we'll look at Calvin in a couple of weeks' time. So if you're baffled by these things, they call them the five Latinist solas, just means five alones. Those are they, and they came out of the reformers' teaching in the um, early, mid-16th century. That's okay, if you're just taking notes, you can just jot those down. I'm going to just say, for the last two or three minutes, um, let's just go back and have a look at one more passage from John chapter 1. Again, it's on your handout there. So if you're okay for two or three more minutes before we have a couple of minutes for questions and close, just go back into your, if you're in twos or threes, just go back into your twos and threes and have a look at the verses from John chapter one there. And this question about freedom and how able are we as human beings without God's help to find God and find salvation. Is that Okay. So again, just get someone to read those verses out loud and then have a talk about the questions on the handout. Okay. Are you okay if we come back together again? I'm just conscious that some of you may be wanting to get moving very soon. Some of you may be wanting to discuss longer. You had a chance to have a quick look at those verses? Yeah, so I'm sure you, the first question you all saw, I suspect you all saw this thing, the image of John contrasting light and dark. So, you know, God is light, God is the truth that shines into the world, uh, and the world is the dark place that doesn't want to receive the light. What about question two? I don't have any thoughts on question two. Why does John say human beings cannot find God on their own? Because that kind of relates to very much to what Luther was saying. Any thoughts on that one? Question two. Thank you, John. That's basically it, isn't it? Um, the language John uses here is that the world would not recognize him, wouldn't receive him. Um, it's quite a kind of defiant. You know, God's trying to speak to us, and we don't want to listen, which is very different from, from you know, Erasmus's thing of, oh, we're, we're all open to God, and we, we all can find our way there. We're, we want just a little bit of help from God. Luther would say, and John says, no, left to our devices, we would just shut God out, thank you very much. Even if Jesus came and stood in front of us, we wouldn't recognize him. Without God's help, yeah. And then on question three, how does Jesus' coming change our situation as human beings? Again, thoughts or questions?
got to answer this one because this is the good news, isn't it? Someone help me. How does Jesus' coming change our situation according to John? Rob, thank you. Great. So, again, grace, um, it, it's a gift word. It simply means God's gift, God's grace, God's attitude of love towards us that's freely given. Um, and it was kind of out there before. You know, the Old Testament's full of God's grace, actually, but, but John is saying it really became obvious and was poured out fully in, in Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Um, absolute truth, absolute reliable understanding of what God is like. We could never understand God without his help, but he's made himself absolutely clear. And we can never find our way to God, but he has given the gift of life in Christ. So great, great gospel verses, aren't they, those ones? Especially um, verse 14 and verses 16 and 17. Great. Well, just to wrap up then, what's, um, what's Luther's legacy? Um, there's lots of things we could say here. And as we said already, we must be careful. He was not perfect. Um, he definitely did have a, a kind of anti-Semitic thing in some of his teaching that, that you can only kind of say, well, that was, no, that was wrong. Um, and that's probably caused a lot of damage um, in kind of German history over the centuries. Um, he didn't always treat women that well either and, and so on. But there were four things we can say about it. I think the great legacy he left, just so wise at communicating the gospel to ordinary people. So he had a pithy way with words. He knew how to use the media. In our world today, he would be using the internet, I'm sure, to get the gospel out. He used the printing press. As I said, he used artists to to do um, animation and cartoons for him. Um, He was a a great communicator. Um, Very pithy way of speaking. Um, Quite a few kind of famous things he he said. Some of them serious, some of them kind of joking. Um, Talking about temptation, he said, you cannot stop the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. Isn't that great? And again, very humble about his role in the Reformation. He said um, he loved beer, by the way, beer, beer drinking. He, he played the lute, the guitar. He said, while I sat in Wittenberg drinking beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the gospel ran its course. I did nothing. The word did it all. Um, but great, great communicator. Church and ministers, um, what a big discovery this was for the church to rediscover that you don't have to go through a priest to be right with God. It was as simple as that. You don't need to pray through the saints to talk to God as your father. You don't need to submit to the church's teaching if it contradicts scripture. Um, He put, as it were, the Bible back in the hands of ordinary people. He made us all priests, or remind us that the Bible tells us we're all priests. The priesthood of all believers was rediscovered really by Luther and the reformers. We all have a part to play in the kingdom. We all have access to the scriptures, just as they are, to read for ourselves. The scriptures and interpretation. Um, the medieval church um, had some very complicated ways of, of rules for interpreting Bible stories, um, often involving spiritualizing them or allegorizing them. Um, so like, like in the, the power of the Good Samaritan, you might know where the, you know, the guy's found at the roadside and eventually um, someone comes along and picks him up and helps him, the Good Samaritan takes him to um, a hotel and puts him up. And, uh, and, and one of the, Reformation, one of the um, Roman Catholic traditions taught that, um, that uh, the, the place where the uh, suffering man is taken at the end of the story, the, the hotel where he's put up, is the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I think he even taught that the Pope was the Good Samaritan that came along and carried him there. Um, Luther took us straight back to the, to the historical meaning of the text. What did this mean to its first hearers and readers? What's the obvious meaning of this? Let's get away from all these kind of complicated rules. Let's just go back to what they call historical interpretation. What did it mean then? What does it mean now? Very important principle of how to read the Bible. And then lastly, big thing, assurance of salvation. His culture, terrified of death, terrified of God's judgment, uh, asking that question, how can I know I've done enough? How can I know I've been forgiven? And the gospel that Luther found, refound for us, is wonderful because it says, 
If you have faith in Christ, you can have assurance. You have assurance that he's forgiven your sins, that you're a child of God, that you are in eternity with Christ through what he has done, not through what you have done. Assurance, great, great gift of the gospel. So that's Martin Luther. He was kind of shock therapy, really, for a medieval world that was rather slumbering its way into oblivion. He came along with all these pithy sayings and explosive documents, and he turned Europe upside down. And we're going to see in the next two seminars how that message was picked up and echoed by other thinkers and writers and reformers, particularly John Calvin in uh, France and then Switzerland, and Thomas Cranmer in our very own England. Just as I finish with a, a prayer in a second, if you... Um, would like to read more. There's a great set of resources out there, um, a whole five or six different books. If you want to get a, a nice starter, the easiest one to start with, the orange cover. It's on the back of your handouts, just called... Um, where's my handout gone? Reform... What's it called? Re- Free, thank you. Freedom Movement, that's the one. That's a great starter. I think it's only, was it, say there? Three pounds. Yeah, great. So pick that. If you want to read more about Luther... Um, Convinced by Scripture, the blue one, or the 9.5 Theses, a nice kind of summary of the 95 Theses. Other reformers, too, in the book there called The Essence of the Reformation. They have some extraordinary godly wives, some of these reformers, who we don't hear enough about. They're in the next book, The First Wives Club, um, Katie Luther and others, and then the, the last one there, um, 12 Reformation Heroes, um, also takes you wide. Looks at people like Calvin and Cranmer and others. As you go, you're going to be given one of those, which is just a free um, leaflet, um, a tract really explaining not just who Martin Luther was, but why this gospel is something for every human being to hear and respond to uh, about the grace, the goodness of God. So if you're not a Christian, that's a great thing for you to read. If you've got someone you know that would benefit, just you know, go and say to them, I had this thing about Reformation at church, this explains what it's all about, thought it was really good. Um, so take that with our conference tonight. Shall we say a closing prayer now? Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you again for our hosts for fantastic refreshments earlier. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for Martin Luther and those around him who you led to rediscover Christ in the Scriptures. Thank you for his faith and his love for Christ. But thank you even more for the timeless good news that we've been um, just dipping into tonight. That although nothing in us is, is good enough by itself to take a step towards you, you came down into this your world as one of us in grace and truth. Thank you that you died on the cross to give us your righteousness when we were still sinners. You brought us home, you made us your own. And we pray that you will give us each the assurance that we belong to you as your children by grace. Deep, deep gratitude for that. But also help us to have eyes for those around us um, for whom Christ died and to whom you send us to pray and to point to the Saviour that has redeemed us all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.